0: Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Magnum Reads. Uh, as per usual, I am Spencer and with me my partners in crime are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing?
1: I am three glasses of wine in Spencer, so I am doing okay. I'm doing pretty well <laughs> It's going to
0: be a fun <laughs> night. I'm kind of curious
2: who you are when you aren't usually Spencer, but we'll save that for another podcast.
1: That's Yeah, that's a different you podcast know, question.
0: I find in exploring literature, adding an element of mystery, improves the overall audience experience. So, just a taste of it so far. And as you said, we can discuss the whole mystery that is me on a much more (laughs) extensive, probably psychology-focused podcast. So, Spencer, do you have some alliteration for us with The Night of the Seven Kingdoms? I I do not have any alliteration for you, because I had a bit of a crap day, and I'm eager to talk about a book rather than try to prove myself in any way competent to thinking about alliteration. fair enough. I think we had enough... enough I think think we had enough celebration of the particular title of this book and the fact that the latest Game of Thrones episode chose to name itself after it.
2: Yes, um, there are definitely some parallels. And, you know, as we mentioned uh, in our previous podcast, we were choosing a Game of Thrones uh, world book to uh, dovetail in with the beginning of Season 8. And for one reason or another, um, we ended up... uh, pushing up this podcast a little bit and as it turns out uh yeah episode two of season eight is the night of the sangfin kingdoms and um i believe as you briefly mentioned on uh some other uh podcast that that i guess uh, occurs on this uh podcast channel the, got the name Questions, escapes me um, <laughs> that this was sort of a bookend to some of the stories that were going on in um Game of Thrones, the TV show, um, uh, where that started essentially in the stories that the stories that we are reading in *Dunk and Egg*.
0: Yeah, for an author that loves to keep secrets and build these just long-term unanswered questions that span across novels, every now and then George R. R. Martin just likes to just drop something. Often at the often at the eleventh hour when he's leaving it, when he's leaving a convention and is kind of annoyed. One of those recently was that Brienne is indeed the distant heir of Sir Duncan the Tall. And so the name of the episode and the title that she achieves in the episode is directly hearkening back to Dunk's own experiences here, and as a fan of both works in the show, I was quite appreciative of that. But, in terms of our exploration of the second book of The Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, entitled The Sworn Sword, we are picking back up with Sir Duncan the Tall and his erstwhile squire, Egg, as they continue their wanderings around the world of Westeros. In this point, I think we've jumped about a year and a half, two years in the future from where we ended up in the last book which was Dunk being assigned as his squire as he leaves the tourney and wanders off to Dorne in search of his potential lady love. Uh, We've seemingly jumped past that. Yeah, yeah, I was going
2: to say, like, you know, it's like, oh, maybe we should go to Dorne. Um, Well, but in the meantime, I'm just going to sort of take up arms for a lord that I know nothing about that has one other knight. And that seems to be a better thing to do than be a hedge knight, which I was, you know, saying was the best thing to do. And I just sort of was like, all right, well, I'm kind of confused as to how he ended up in this situation. And
1: yeah, yeah, it's a weird kind of moment for him him to end up in because he says it like multiple times during the second novella that like, oh, of course, as you said, BJ, like being a hedge knight is is better than what I'm doing now. And his only justification throughout the whole time is that Egg is with him, right? And so now he has taken on this kind of like weird pseudo-parental role of like, well, I can't take him. I can't take this sort of princely figure into the hedge with me and do this whole thing. He has to know what sort of squiring for a knight is, but the, the kind of role that he takes on um, leaves a little bit to be desired. And
2: also, the whole point of him taking Egon as a squire was he was going to take him on the road and be a hedge knight. And so. And now he's not, yeah. Right.
0: (laughs) It's an interesting media rest jumping into the story because they talk about that like a year and a half, two years have passed, that they went to Dorne, that they wandered all over the place, they went through deserts, they had all these kind of adventures. But it's only vaguely described, and it apparently influenced him enough that he's now trying to stay in one place for a while for his squire. It just really leaves it to an imagination what occurred that kind of changed his perspective on his profession and led him led him to give up his seemingly quest that he ended the last tale with to find the puppet girl back off in Dorne. Oh, presumably soon. he just didn't didn't find I it. I guess
2: I didn't read that far into it. I I don't know. I, maybe I missed that. Like I I got that they were wandering about and traveling, but I didn't. Um oh yeah he did sort of mention that that uh egg tans well remember his horse dying mm-hmm.
0: or m- remember his horse dying and him burying it while the dornish are looking that, on looking yes, on yes, at him that is right but
2: he does like reminisce about um the the puppet girl and that then that sort of doesn't quite jive with the well i went to dorn to look for her and then my horse died and i rode with some dornish men and eh, whatever
1: well and I, now I certainly never in the Northern Reach. Yeah, I never got the impression that he actually met up with her. Um but I also no, no, no. I wonder about you all's imp- you all's impressions. I don't know. <laughs> about your collective impressions about the idea, Spencer, that you brought up that it's like a couple of years later. Um and the only reason mm-hmm. that I question that is because I don't read Egg as like that much older in the course of this story. Like, his characterization does not seem a couple of years older to me, and I'm wondering if I'm off on that. He doesn't
0: seem... I mean, his characterization remains relatively consistent. I mean, I guess... At one point, Dunk says it's been a year and a half since the tournament, or something along those lines. Okay. Um, Which, I guess, would... I I think he says Egg is about 10 now, which would mean he's made the jump from, like, 8, 8.5 to 10. So... I agree with you that I do not see much change in his, in his characterization or his level of maturity. Egg seems very much egg. Yeah. And maybe um, maybe
1: that has something to do with the kind of level of maturity that I read in him in the first novella, where I would not have mm-hmm. characterized him as eight. Um, I would have put him at sort of ten-ish, the precociousness of 10 um, in the first novella, mm-hmm. and so that has maybe remained consistent for me into this into the second installation.
2: Gotcha, and uh, like I think that that your description of him being precocious is very apt, and that might be why you know he's not really changing that much until he takes up another mantle. And I you know I think that the third book in the, of or the third novella in this book sort of gets into that a little bit more.
1: Yeah,
2: um, mm-hmm. and I also might. Presume that given the that he's around Dunk and that he's around sort of maybe not the uh, same tutors and and lords that he's was accustomed to previously, the uh, behavioral development might sort of have taken
0: a little bit of a backseat.
1: Shall we say? Sure.
0: With Dunk's his sole company in the world. Uh, oh, you yeah, mean you Leicester. don't
1: think that sort of like Dunk the Lunk is the arbiter of all that is all that is cultured in the world? <laughs>
2: Probably not. I would say he
0: tries, yeah. <laughs> but and, uh, and also it's more
2: aspirational. Really, Dunk. Dunk sure. was the repeated phrase of the past novella. This one is the Lord of uh, the Ravens has a thousand eyes and one.
0: Yeah, that comes up quite a bit. As we, <laughs> uh, one as a result of Dunk really going up in the world to a certain degree, he is on his own terms. He's not somebody who's almost halfway snuck into a tournament and is trying to find and trying to find a place for himself in the world. He is a sworn sword, he has roamed to a certain degree, he's become a proper knight, if we may still doubt whether his vows are legitimate or not, and as a result of his expanded, you know, scope, we get a lot more politics and history and view of how the world is going rather than just how one tournament is going. Yeah. Which was a, a surprising growth to the perspective of the books that I wasn't expecting when I first read
2: Well, maybe it's because he's, like, wandered into high-level meetings, like, wherever he goes, and they're just like, oh, well, <laughs> all right, he belongs, and so that's fine. Clearly. Um, I mean, he's tall. He must belong yeah. here. That's how it <laughs> works. So, if our listeners haven't listened to that previous episode where we did the first of this um, uh, book, the first novella in this book basically there's a meeting between uh the princes of the realm and dunk just sort of wanders in and then they just like turn to him and start talking to him and he's just like oh okay i'll just sit here and talk to these people because fine whatever and no one questions why he's there (laughs) like how he wandered in what he's doing and it's like, oh, well, you know, I was on a tour of the White House and I wandered into the Situation Room. Um, I left my Boy Scout troop uh, upstairs, but it's cool, right? Mm hmm. He's got a badge. He must belong. Exactly. That's um, how
1: I felt coming into grad well. school. So, you know, <laughs> respect. <laughs>
0: On, in terms of our setting for this book, we are set uh, with Dunk having sworn his sword to a very minor lord in the northern part of the Reach, the land ruled by the Tyrals. He is Eustace Osgray, who is a knight who has fallen on much worse times than his more distant ancestor. And as a result of a combination of drought, poverty, and increasingly growing tensions with a neighboring lord, Dunk is really in the thick of it in a way that... Uh, He has not been before. He's given a lot more of agency about choice, about how he's going to influence pretty major events. Um, So a couple of questions, Spencer. And Mm -hmm. feel free to
2: to jump in, Sarah. But I feel like um, of the two of you, Spencer might be a little bit more um, steeped or in the mire of the history of Westeros. Um, Because going in, I... There's a little bit of a reveal of who Sir Eustace is, and we will uh, get to that in this episode. But Spencer, did you know that going into this book? Did I know who Sir Eustace Osgrave was? Uh, yeah. Or why he had fallen mm. on hard times?
0: God no. Okay. For a variety of reasons. Uh,
2: Spencer, I don't uh, know. You could know is... every. You could be like Egg and know every banner and every lord in the Seven Kingdoms, and I'd just say, "Yep, that seems on brand." No, it's
0: fair to say he practically didn't exist before this book. Gotcha. No, Uh, I think that's-
1: I think that's a good question though, BJ, because, like, you do kind of get the sense as you progress through this novella and kind of discover who Sir Eustace is that, like, I don't know, maybe in the mythology of this world, like, you should have- you should have known.
0: Yeah. Well, the- the Oskrey family is is a relevant family. They okay. have history, they've got background. They're they're part of the mythology, they're part of the history. I mean, they go back through the Age of Heroes kind of thing in terms of the stories that he describes. His own particular contribution to it, I think it's almost just relevant how insignificant he is because it is the role that he is. He is the lesser heir to a great house. At least that's how he feels, and that's how we find him in throughout much of the story. Gotcha. So um, would
1: it be fair to say that... Um, That he was always going to have this kind of, like, not sullied necessarily, but this sort of lesser influence, this lesser narrative. Um, But the war that we become privy to later in the story gave him a sense of, like, maybe it could be different.
0: I think very much a key motivation of this character and what drives Duke along through the story is him living in the legacy and the ruins of the past. Okay and him desperately trying to aspire to the greatness that he's imagined and been told that his ancestor. I think that compels a lot of his actions before this story. I think it motivates some of his actions during the story, that there is a no small amount of pride in this man that never lived a life or even lived in a world where such pride was really appropriate. But he's, being, he's so much looking, feels like he's being looked down upon by everyone that came before him, what he has to live up to, that it propels a lot of his action, often for ill.
1: Now, it is interesting um, to get back to the beginning of this story that mm-hmm. we we are very, very much in Medeus Reyes, Reyes um, and we don't know any of this, right? Um, we could, no, no. to some extent, be anywhere at the beginning of this story. So what what is going on at the beginning of the story?
2: So essentially, the- Dunk is returning from some uh, mission, shall we say, that that his lord had set him on. And we eventually find out once he meets the other um, knight in this lord's... I feel like retinue is just a little bit um, overzealous. Sworn it's service. It's a little grand. Um, yeah, so so in this lord's service, um, and who's basically just giving him a hard time, like, you know, what are you doing? And, you know, have you... Uh, return to uh sir Sir useless and and uh have you gotten the wine that he sent you out for and dunks kind of like well i did my best i didn't get like all that he wanted but no one had it don't call him useless you know he's he's a lord of the realm and and i'm gonna stand up for him because that's what's right and we are knights and you should hold up the the honor and duty that that we are supposedly sworn to because i totally went through that (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Uh, But he
2: actually, well, he actually sort of has, so.
1: Well, yeah, and so kind of what you're getting at, BJ, is we really start with this scene of Duncan Egg coming back from some sort of mission. It's a little bit unclear from the very beginning what they're doing, but they come across um, these bodies in cages. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, the crow cage sitting there. Yeah,
1: that have been picked over and um, decaying and um, eaten and all of these kinds of things. Um, but it's not until, like, several pages into the story that we realize that, like, the, the quote-unquote mission they were on was getting wine from some sort of neighboring um, town, community.
0: City or town. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's an interesting initial scene it's an, it's an because it almost comes across as Shakespearean, as the two of them talk about these two dead bodies and why they're there and what led them to this moment. Yeah. Um, as they're just... Debating the reasons by which these two men have been wrapped, uh, tied together in, into a crow cage and left almost essentially to eat each other in the baking sun. Yeah, yeah and, and it then has this within. kind of,
1: like, alas, poor York, um, but then a sort of, like, I knew you not at all, and, like, what was your crime? Um,
0: <laughs> I knew you not can only hypothesize. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's debate this. But I
1: will do so at length. Yeah.
2: Yes. And it also, um, I think, is contrasting the time that they are in with... Um, the later novels that this is not winter is coming this is dead of summer summer is here here, (laughs) and maybe there's more magic in the world um because at least the rumors are that the king's hand i believe is a sorcerer Mm -hmm. and is responsible for some of this though that could be similar to like every other attribution of like a a bastard and and somebody who's a little bit more of a schemer than a fighter but i feel like with the mythos of the rest of the books that we have that that's not really a thing at least you know however many hundred years later the uh main s- series the main set of novels take place
1: yeah i wonder mm-hmm. if it's a sort of like because it's summer because there aren't these sort of like Dire life and death considerations to take into account. That the idea, the myth of, um, and maybe it's not so much a myth, but the sort of like the narrative of sorcery and magic can can hold much more sway. Um, whereas when you get into the sort of like we are coming into winter, we are fighting to survive. Um, the the reality of magic and kind of what is going on. Is downplayed because they actually cannot think about it in that moment, um, in the face of their own survival.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think uh, it's I think it's a mix between those two as well. Uh, I think that there's like no imminent all, improm- all approaching a- apocalypse, but there has been a, a very extensive series of unfortunate events that has befallen people, and they're kind of looking for somebody to blame in now a more idle repairing time mm-hmm. of where we get over the course of describing this that there is a horrendous drought. That there was a the great spring sickness, which seemingly killed off a substantial portion of the population of Westeros, including like the king and several of the princes. Because we're the current king is a guy we had not heard of before in the prior series, nor his um, right hand, uh, his hand, of the king, bloodraven. We never previously mentioned because they were too down, too far down, apparently the line of succession. Um, so it seems like that while there's no all improaching apocalypse to distract people, that we get more important things to worry about. There was a series of very disastrous events in the past and though things are slowly starting to recover and people are still enduring them to a certain degree they have enough idle time that they're looking for somebody to blame as responsible for what has befallen them and blood raven the albino one red-eyed manipulative distrustworthy non-noble bastard figure perfectly checks quite a lot of boxes of the classic villain from all the fantasy tales
2: yep um and i also think it's kind of funny that he's just never addressed it's sort of like, you know, you expect the uh, red herring bit, big bad to have some effect on something. Some role.
0: Um, and he just doesn't, it, which I kind of appreciate. He, yeah, he, he is setting in background. He is at, he plays no active role in the story. Um, but one thing I want to hit, hit about the crow cage before we get too far into this is it leads to a fun discussion between Egg and Dunk about why the two of them are there. With Egg having very romantic, kind of childlike views about it oh, what are they, like, some famous robber or whatever else? And Dunk having much more sober views, which I think in some ways set the theme and the subject of what's going to be the main focus of the text, but his view is, no, they probably just pissed off some lord, and some lord can do whatever they want when they're on their own land. fact that guy's missing a tongue, maybe a crow blocked it out. Maybe some lord didn't want him talking to him. Yeah. But it really sets up the uh, kind of world of justice that they're operating in, which was really relevant as the story is going on, that a lord has the power of life and death and can do as they damn well wish on their own lands.
1: And the kind of like very small relative differences between the rank of relatively minor lords really matters in the Mm -hmm. lives of everyday people, which mm -hmm. is something that I think that we don't we probably don't get enough of enough of in the um, in the later novels is the kind of like extent to which the everyday politics and regional politics and local politics really affect kind of what the day-to-day existence looks like. And we really do get that in the story um, and in the series of novellas, really.
2: So Sarah, yeah, are you I, saying I really that um, George R. R. Martin should add more perspectives in, in his novels to, to better <laughs> oh. round out?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that, is that, is that not a new position to bring to this whole thing? <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious where, where you're landing on this potentially he he has more room in these kind of sod, side projects um to do some other things that there was not room <laughs> to mm-hmm. do
0: um <laughs> it, it, it is a great point sir, and it's something i really do like about this novella is we really do get the perspective of the actual peasants that are forced to endure the game of thrones the the games that lords play like when Sir Eustace, we'll get to it later, but when Sir Eustace does his peasant levy, he essentially just summons a collection of people to die for his vanity. Like five. And they have, <laughs> I think it's eight, something like that. Um. But they're... They have no chance of surviving his particular plan for what he wants for them, but they have no choice in no the matter. They have come here to die, and that's about all their story is to be. And I and guess he I'll
1: himself s- is not like a particularly big player in the grand scheme of things. No. Yeah, so we are very much in local politics here. Like that is that is the story we are talking about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say like that. It is one thing that I do appreciate about things that TV shows can do with. Uh, in shorter amounts of time and sort of give a slightly alternate perspective or a different view or at least show what minor characters are doing mm-hmm. as like people on a screen rather than like 10 pages in a novel
1: yeah mm-hmm. um,
2: and I think that there are tv shows and movies that do a really good job of that and and I think that the um the show is one of them and um mm-hmm. I I think there are rumors that or not rumors actually like confirmed information that there will be like prequel, uh, shows. And so, so I'm sort of curious if,
0: uh, we might get a, a rehashing of, of this, uh, these stories. Uh I unfortunately think that George R. R. Martin really does actually intend to write more... Well, unfortunate. That's a weird thing to say. I think he really intends to write more Dunk and Egg, and as a result of that, I think he got burned pretty bad by the books getting beyond where he'd written, and I don't think he wants that for Dunk and Egg. I think he wants to write more of these before he allows the rights to go to screen. Interesting. But for this story... Yep. (laughs) um, One of the first things they find, and one of the real things that really gets the plot in motion is they're talking with... As they're riding back with their wine with egg on his mule, and uh, Dunk, notably only riding one horse, which gets explained later, Thunder. They come across, across Brown Bennis, who mocks the lord that they're in service of, but they pretty quickly discover that the bridge that he's standing on has no water running underneath it, whereas only a few days before it was running low, but still with a flowing stream and fish in it. Now pretty utterly dry, with just dead fish lying on the surface with no explanation attached to it, other than Brown Bennis just kind of shrugging and saying, eh, there's a drought. Let's not look into it. So, uh, Spencer, do you think Brown Bennis would have been sent to the wall in a different era? Uh, If he waited around long enough for someone to catch him, sure, but this seems like the kind of guy that knows when to exit stage left, and he does so well. Fair enough. I mean, I guess
2: he just, it surprised me that, um, and... Uh, that
0: he's in the service of somebody who presumes himself to be noble. I think it's also someone who presumes to think other people are noble if they appeal to his vanity, and also he doesn't have much room to, you know, be choosy about who is willing to come pledge his sor- their swords towards him.
1: I also feel like this is just like, as much as I have sympathy to Sir Eustace, this is just like bad city management, right? Oh, you yeah, should yeah. know if your main water source. <laughs> is not running for some reason, right? So I could understand in some sort of larger city where there are um, several different rivers or tributaries or creeks or whatever, maybe you lose track of one of them, but this is it. Um, and this well, is it for a relatively small amount of land people, um, et etc. et cetera that he is responsible well
0: like many of the elderly who are in a semi-retired state it appears that sir eustace really does prefer to go antiquing because that's most of what he seems to do with his spare time is just rummage through the old antiques that are sitting up in his, ca- his i do castle with massive air quotes but stand fast which is just kind of a tower sitting in the middle of nowhere so i i guess uh, i
2: will say that he does have the excuse of it was fine like two or three days ago that's Our ago, reports may not never. have gotten back yet and also, Sir Benis, uh and we'll use the term loosely, is like, oh, no, why don't... Do, it's just the drought. Like, it's fine. Um, like, why would you question it? Which I feel
0: like is super short-sighted for, like, the laziest dude ever. <laughs> I, I, I kind of interpreted that he may have either known or assumed what the actual reason was and just did not want to get involved in that
2: shit. Right. Like, I completely agree with you, but it's also kind of a well what's bennis gonna do yeah because he's basically entirely reliant on sir eustace as far as i can tell like putting up with him being super lazy and Mm -hmm. the only person that seems to be going out and getting consumables is uh you know a maybe 16 year old and his 10 year old squire and they don't seem to be doing that great a job of
0: it either yeah, I think they said, oh, "Well, Dunk does not know how old he is and can only guess." And I think he, at one point, claims that he's approaching twenty, but it's probably closer to eighteen or something like that. I thought in the last book it was, well, I'm pretty sure, like I'm sixteen by now.
2: That seems about right.
1: But, but we're a couple but of it's years. It's two on years. years. Yes, yeah.
2: that is, that's true. Um,
0: but
1: so they uh, they meet Bennis essentially at at the bridge and discovered that there is much to Bennis's not chagrin, but sort of like chagrin that they have figured this out, um, that there is no, <laughs> God forbid, that you notice there is no water running under the bridge. Um, Damn your eyes. Yeah. And so the, um, Dunk, I don't know if it's even to his credit, to his sort of like being a person in the world is like, why the fuck isn't there water under the bridge? Um, And Bennis tries to downplay um, the whole thing, as we have talked about. It's sort of, it's just a drought, um, you know, there's nothing to worry about, and Dunk is is having none of this, right?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dunk clearly feels a duty to at least casually investigate maybe what's stopping the water from flowing. Because it clearly happened, in his view, way too fast to just be a drought. It was flowing to the point where the fish are now lying dead on the top of the surface.
1: But they're still like in the mud, so it could only have yeah. been a Very certain recent. number of days, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And and so the other thing that I guess I noticed, which um I, and I would presume it's kind of the like where people are in society, that Bennis just like makes fun of Dunk, which seems a little <laughs> odd for somebody that's presumably like twice his size and mm-hmm. way less than half his age. And they don't seem to be on particularly different social standing.
0: I, I, in some ways, I feel like the only reason that Dunk's putting up with him is it seems that Bennis has a history with Dunk's old masters Sir Arwen of Pennytree. They used to ride together. That Dunk, to a certain degree, may have even grown up around Bennis. And so maybe feel a certain degree obliged to not knock his block off at one point or another.
2: Yeah, but he was like, and he was a complete asshole then, and he's still a complete oh, asshole, yeah. and he keeps doing it. So, hmm... Well, so and I yet he
0: advises egg fair. just put up with it
1: yeah, yeah and so I think I think all of that is fair but don't we always all, don't we also excuse me get the sense that like Bennis does not act maybe he acts more deferentially but still with this sort of like um sarcastic insurrectionist undertone to Sir Eustace in the moment
2: yeah I mean I think that happens later when he knows a little bit more about the situation and so in the moment i mean sir eustace is basically condemning a bunch of people to death because uh i don't even know um but when yeah like and we'll get to it but like sir eustace essentially decides that he's gonna declare war with all like 10 of his people against the uh the castle that used to be his and the lady within who has call of you know at least tens of knights
1: Mm
2: -hmm. um and it's kind of like Dunk's like, all right, like, I guess, like, dying is a thing that could happen, but also, I mean, I kind of have, well, not the heir apparent with me, but one of, (laughs) one of the princes. One of
0: noble blood, one of royal blood right here. Yeah,
2: and it's just like, well, I probably shouldn't just be like, all right, well, we're gonna die because this dude's decided that he's done, um, and I, I will probably, uh, go into i think he might be a little suicidal at that point but oh
0: yeah. we'll get to that let, let, let's get Sure. yes. Yeah, <laughs> so, let's get there
1: so dunk
0: in, in terms of immediate events yeah
1: dunk is not buying any of um sir bennis's nonsense um and decides mm-hmm. you know what i'm still got some energy in me uh my horse is still okay uh i think i'm gonna take this other way back to the castle and just sort of see or Stronghold castle, what are we calling this this thing that Sir Eustace is in?
2: S- Spencer likes calling it a fortified.
0: Steadfast. Its its name is literally steadfast. Okay. it's it's a fortified tower. <laughs> yeah, it does
1: seem to seem to be like ruins popped up propped up by some things. Um, so I'm gonna take this sort of alternate route back and just kind of check and see see what's going on because something doesn't pass the sniff test here. Um, yeah, so he and Egg kind of go up, but of course Benes can't just leave it. So he follows them.
0: Well, I think he sends Egg back with the wine. Yeah, um, and he. Oh, right. yeah. Okay, but that's right. I'm off. sorry.
1: Egg is Egg is not there.
0: They got to. Fulfill, he has to fulfill the mission, but he still wants to investigate what's going on with our essentially our lifeblood now running dry. Maybe let's go a hundred yards up and look. Yeah, and,
2: and I sort of so, imagine just. Venice being like surly and obnoxious the entire time and it's just like why are you making me Mm -hmm. go all this way out of our way i was resting comfortably under the tree like where you found me like and you made me come out here and dunks just like no i didn't
0: go away you smell bad like why why is this happening (laughs) But this seems like Benis reaching the conclusion of, okay, shit, if Dunk finds something that I was willfully ignoring and I'm not there for it too, this could look bad on me. I have to go. So he goes, sarcastically the whole time, and they appear to like march along uh, towards the headwaters of the stream, and lo and behold, they pretty quickly find something, don't they? Yeah, um, th- there's a dam being built by a handful
2: of peasants and, um i believe you know it, it's a fairly sizable dam i mean for for what it is and they talk about it being uh designed by a meister
0: it seems like it's just across the border in the neighboring lands ruled by house weber who um have blocked off the stream from flowing across the border yep the um, uh, the lady of cold moat or better known mm-hmm. as the red widow Mm-hmm. Uh, appropriate giving the spider that's on their symbol Uh, who has quite a negative reputation that we hear about before we meet her in terms of being responsible for the deaths of four prior husbands, hence the name Red Widow, Mm -hmm. uh, engaging in magic, engaging in all kinds of evil things, having murdered peasants on on, uh, Sir Eustace's land before. She comes across as a real piece of work before we meet her. So, Spencer,
2: um, how does the Meister assignment work in this world?
0: Um... It appears to be based on just essentially demand i mean the meister that's sent to you is not from any particular region or family or anything else that appears to be roughly random with only just a certain degree of the more skilled you are maybe the more noble house you are sent to or the more connections you had before you came a meister the better place you get assigned um but otherwise if you're a noble house each noble house is essentially entitled uh, well, each noble house of a certain degree of standing is entitled to have a Meister and is entitled to request such. Yeah, I guess I uh, was. I think they have to. Uh, that's kind of what I was going I for. Pay. Like
2: what, like how important do you have to be before you get like? Uh, uh...
0: You're you're paying for him, so there's a certain element of those that can afford to pay get. One. Gotcha. So do they pay you're the pa- Citadel? Yep, you're paying a stipend for him. Gotcha. Not to him, for him. You're then just paying his expenses once he's there. That seems like a very weird setup. Well, it how it works.
1: It. I would also point out in a little bit of a preview. I mean, it's not that different from what we get in the next novel we're reading, um, the fifth season, and yeah. kind of how the experts are paid and assigned um, in that space. Although well, there is a there is mm-hmm. a power dynamic there that does not necessarily exist with the Maesters of the Citadel.
2: Right, but I would also say like they the it's. Well, in the next novel that we're reading, the fifth season, that you know, there's this group that goes along, go, that goes around, and sort of takes care of sort of local problems. And I feel like that's kind of similar to, like, getting in touch with a company and paying them for some work, and they send somebody out. Mm-hmm. Whereas contractor basis,
0: hmm? contractor kind of basis. Yeah.
2: Whereas this sort of feels like, well, it's a contractor, but they're essentially yeah. part of your family now and are going to live with you, and are going to counsel you for everything, and that just... Forever. Yeah, seems super weird to me.
0: It has an odd mix between monastic and just very dedicated scientific study that it's just how it plays out in the world. And it's noteworthy that Sir Eustace does not maintain the power, influence, or money necessary to have a meister in his home. Whereas um, the Lady of Cold Notes most certainly does and is using him to his utmost extent in terms of trying to improve her lands.
2: Yep. Um, Anyway, so they happen upon this uh, group of peasants building uh, a dam and Dunk sort of goes, uh, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. And they're like, who are you and why are you talking to us? Mm -hmm. um and they're like all right you know it's the meister that made it and you know we're putting it up and and then it's like well you can take it down and it gets a little heated um and then bennis is like well we're knights we can just do whatever the fuck we want because why else would i be a knight and all right i'm gonna you know assault some villagers because you know again what are you gonna do
0: I like that it's a certain mix, you know, where knights can do everyone, And also really kind of pissed off at Dunk that he's even in this situation. I think he just tells Dunk on point, why did you investigate this? Now I gotta kill somebody. Now I gotta start something. Look what you made me do.
2: Yeah, he, he kind of reminds me of, like, a mob enforcer. But not even one that quite rate, like, the cut rate suits that they always wear.
1: Yeah, it was a sort of like Godfather situation to me, but like a Godfather situation where the sort of like enforcer doesn't really understand what's going on. Um mm-hmm. and has gotten a little bit, you know, a little bit into his own head as to the sort of relative power that he wields in the relatively low situation in what's in which he finds himself.
2: Yeah, I I guess I kind of imagine like an old school mob where everybody's in like those like pinstripe suits and 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 that kind of attire and then um somebody that's a little bit more say stereotypical new jersey kind of mob like (laughs) walks into that crowd and they're all just like uh what are you doing here and that's sir Venice.
1: yeah no we're like we're putting we're putting a possum head in somebody's bed instead of a horse head
0: yeah (laughs) there's an interesting comparison (laughs) um it, it's an interesting scene uh, in terms of, immediately as, as we're saying, uh, Sir Bennis walks up to one of the seemingly lead peasants there and just opens his face with his sword. Just cuts him from jaw up to his forehead, or up to his jawbone, or cheekbone. And these guys bleed. now, Dunk immediately intervenes. And I'm, all, I'm left to wonder to a certain degree of what would have happened if Dunk hadn't been there or hadn't intervened. Bennis kind of implies that he was just about to go ride down and kill them all.
2: Yeah, uh, he, he does... um well he says you know either the pear trees that you're watering with this stream die or you do Mm um and it's kind of like it would be a shame if somebody got hurt here it's like all right you need to like calm
0: yourself like you you probably barely have a sharp sword at this point so yeah, there's a, there's a line he says to Dunk later of where I should have cut I should have cut his bloody throat for him. Only then the rest would have run like rabbits and we'd have had to have ride them down ride down the lot of them too. You'd kill twenty men, twenty two. That's two more than all your fingers and your toes, Lunk. So he's I mean, he may just be puffing to a certain degree, but he's speaking pretty casually about just wholesale slaughter that just no one would have noticed from his point of view.
2: Yeah, and I think this also sort of speaks to you know maybe even if he wasn't wearing armor, what being able to wield a sword kind of means and sort of the history that we sort of get into a little bit where a lot of the fighting age uh, men have been killed like 10 years ago. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of unlikely that there are going to be a lot of peasants that are of sort of able-bodied and maybe have military experience. Um, And so he's probably taking that... Little bit of experience and cold steel way farther than it should go.
0: It's also giving us a perspective of how broad the term knight is. Last uh, novella we saw knights pretty much in their tourney best. This one we're seeing how knights can be like, well, hedge knights in particular can be like Dunk, maintaining knightly virtues is the best idea that they see, best idea that they can, or they can be like Sir Dennis, pretty much just a officially anointed thief. A man a man with a sword perfectly willing to wield it in a way that benefits him. Yeah, uh, it makes for a rather intimidating person to have around. But uh, have this having occurred and Dunk really quickly realizing that none of this is going to be good, they decide that they're going to ride back to Standfast and inform Sir Eustace about what has occurred. Yeah, and, uh, and
2: I think this, again, reiterates how little Venice thinks of Sir Eustace, keeps calling him useless, says, like, oh, I would have just lied to him. Well, yeah, the stream dried up. Like, it doesn't matter. And I think this sort of speaks both to his the lack of caring for anybody else, so... Um, one of the themes that comes up a lot with Dunk is noblesse oblige, which is like the duty of the nobles to provide for sort of everybody, the commoners underneath them that Mm Benes clearly could not care less about. And basically Benes being a lazy sod and just like, well, I don't feel like having to deal with it. So, eh. What's the worst that can happen?
0: Well, they ride back to standfast and we come across for the first time Sir Eustace, who immediately strikes me as a more than somewhat tragic figure of where he is an old man, wrapped up in the past, doing his own antiquing in his own drawers. He's presumably rifled through a thousand times before, very much alone. That is, we know that his three prior son, that his three sons died in the, uh, the Black Fire Rebellion, a war that seemingly happened before the first book. Uh, we know that his daughter died in the spring sickness. We know that his wife died sometime before then too. So it's really just him and his two immediate servants, just up in this rapidly decaying tower on a hill in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so it str- I, we also, mm-hmm. in these like couple of pages, get drawings of everybody. Um, we do, and I love the drawings that that uh, complement this book. Yeah,
2: I I think that they're they they are a fairly significant addition, um, and you sort of get the. Like scruffy dirtiness of Sir Benice and her his sort of dour expression, and the wistfulness of Sir Eustace, and sort of how he's keeping up appearances because in this sweltering heat in his castle he's wearing uh, at least two layers, and you know is sitting and and reminiscing over a shield, and and has that um, diabetes mustache going. <laughs>
1: Well, so can I ask... Wilfred
0: Brimley, yes. Can
1: I ask you both, like, given, um, and we get right in a row at least three, yeah, three illustrations of, of Sir Eustace, um, or I'm sorry, of, of, um, Eustace in different sort of situations and angles and all of that, but, like, when, by the time we get to those illustrations, what, does he look like you expected him to look from the descriptions that we got from Sir Benis and even really from um, Dunk himself?
2: No, I, I think that he looks younger than I expected um, and I guess he also looks heartier than I expected yeah. and then in the last he one like- he sort of looks a little bit more like I expected so it sort of um, you get more and more of, you know, sort of what he looks like in his surroundings and then the last one it's just like a bunch of crap surrounding him like hemming in on his uh, seat of power and he sort of looks like the stuff around him is encroaching on his person
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: it, it, yeah brown answer.
1: oh no I was and you can go ahead Spencer I was just gonna say like those first two at least the first picture certainly he looks like a a hail and hearty older gentleman certainly um but mm-hmm. he looks like a powerful man um yeah. but Spencer I like your point about the last picture about the sort of like stuff and dross of the past really overtaking him um mm-hmm. in this moment like he really needs a sort of Marie Kondo kind of thing <laughs> to happen well, it's here. It's not the
2: I... blackberry
0: bushes so <laughs> mm-hmm. I, mean, I I agree with you guys more in terms of the descriptions that we were getting of, you know, Sir Useless, in terms of this just man living in tragedy, I was expecting a much more physically broken figure to maybe match his psychological state and just the crumbled ruin he's living in. But he's still very much a strong and proud man. He carries himself well. As much as he's getting along later in years, he's still quite a bit of strength and determination. As you pointed out, BJ, in terms of his attire, in terms of constantly being dressed as a noble should despite the sweltering Southern heat and no one else being there to see him in the state. Um, but yeah, uh, BJ, I very much like your point about that third image, just really getting into his mind in terms of he's just living among the relics of the past. They are encroaching on any ability by which he could even sit in his chair. There's so much interfering with his day to day life. And I think, and I, think it, I think that reflects a lot of worries. at.
2: Yeah. And so I think it's interesting how this compares to the descriptions and images that we get of, A lot of um, maybe lords and knights in the main series where I would say uh, Jorah Mormont might be kind of around the same age, maybe a little bit younger, and he's never sort of all, he's never, most of the lords that are sort of a little bit older and not in castles or not in major uh, castles have sort of let themselves go a lot Mm -hmm. more. And I, I don't know if this is sort of, uh, I think this might be a way to that uh, Martin is contrasting what the, this age is like that we're in with the um, Dunk and Egg books compared to uh, Winter is Coming books.
1: Yeah, it's an, it, it's an age and a, a narrative of relative prosperity, right? Um, these are like relatively minor concerns to be dealing with in the scheme of things. Mm
0: -hmm. It's a lot of people willing to die over, you know, water, willing to die over whether their melons and their barley and their fields are going to get what they need to to survive so that people can eat tomorrow. It's not the same level of world-changing concerns that we see in the novellas, but it's, at least from their perspective, no less important in the immediate day-to-day. Well, I was going to say, up up
2: until the very end of the books, I feel like the, the schemes are who holds power. You know, there isn't, like, the the major world changing calamity going on in like three quarters of the series. Mm-hmm. So like I agree with you so that's where okay, they so. get to, but not where they start.
1: Yeah, and I think you know, maybe we get a little bit more of a sense here, although we're we're still not like entirely in the heads of like we're never entirely in the heads of like peasants trying to exist in this world. Um and so there there is a there is a possibility that the sort of the idea that the water is not getting to where it is supposed to be is as disastrous for the peasants living here in their day-to-day lives as the sort of winter is coming narrative right in in what that actually means like they're probably going to die in both scenarios and we don't get that in either one um although we are a Mm -hmm. little bit closer to it here than we are in the main narratives of the novels
2: right and i think that it might just be because it's a novella we don't have like any of the commoners coming to sir eustace or sort of anything that you might expect to go on with a terrible drought and there being a lord that you can like go talk to and i mean i guess also the peasants that we eventually interact with are kind of not the cream of the crop shall we say yeah are Um, they really
1: going to come politic with the lord yeah around um, them i don't know
2: they're less of the pearl barley and sort of uh what you get in large bins at a, at a warehouse.
0: Uh. Well, w- w- when they find Sir Eustace, they find him, um, very much caught in a story of the past about the little lion, about a prior distant ancestor of his house that was the, uh, Marshal of the North that defended the Northern marches against the encroachment of the Westermen under the, under the Lannisters, and stood alone and won a great victory to buy time at, with, at the cost of his life, the time for his Lord to rally his forces and fight off invaders. Um, and it's clearly a story that means quite a bit to him, that he's found this old shield of the, the distant distant history of the Czechy Lion. And it's in this moment when he's very proudly talking about this, he's very eager to show the two in this aspect of his history, Dunk has to tell him what's going on with the uh, stream nearby. Bennis is wanting to leave out a lot of the details, Dunk cuts right to the heart of it. Your stream is blocked, it's being done by the Webers. and oh yeah, Bennis may have just started a war.
2: <laughs> yeah. And I, it, I think it was kind of funny here because it was just like, all right, well, uh, what are we going to do? Uh, the lady doesn't really like me and the lord that's above her doesn't like me either. So. Uh, I guess war. Yeah, like, don't go out and round up uh, some some able-bodied men and, and we're going to
0: fight this war. And they go do that. Um, it's, it's Sort a, of. As you guys were talking about, As you guys were talking about too, in terms of like the distance and separation between the peasants, it's really apparent here of where they're not only just physically separated, you have to go out and find the villages somewhere. They are just very much socially separated too. Their only involvement with these peasant villages is you get me my resources, you get my money, and I come and do a peasant levy when I need to. There's no like day-to-day seemingly interaction between them. There's Literally, even physically, far removed from where each other are, other than what needs they need to get, what needs the Lord needs from them.
2: Well, and I guess this kind of is weird to me. I guess I had a, a, a historical picture in my mind of, like, what would normally happen that maybe is also completely wrong. But I guess the amount of land that I expect a given set of peasants to, like, be able to farm or sort of do anything with to be relatively small. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess I don't know if, if either of you have experience with gardening or whatever else, but you know, even with
0: reasonable tools, it's not fun. Um, (laughs) it's not fun. And I, and, and I think they, particularly back in this era when they didn't have any means of doing really concentrated agriculture, they didn't have any fertilizers, they didn't have any pesticides, whatever else, they really had to probably cover a pretty substantial amount of land to provide for any number of people, just because you'd basically be just be, you know... Useful plant, useful plant, rotting plant, weed, just all piled together in these massive fields where large stretches you're having to leave fallow between seasons so that you can even ever use them again. So it seems like this book is reflecting that they need a lot of land to provide for even just three relatively small, pretty barren villages and one rotting tower on a hill. I guess I wonder if um, this is part and parcel
2: of the um, distance troubles that uh, maybe have become somewhat apparent in some of these uh writings mm-hmm. where that was an interesting noise um where people cover large distances and uh go places and and just like no distance is quite reasonable And people travel way too quickly or way too slowly or whatever. And, and, you know, a bunch of peasants are going to be farming square miles um, and basically be totally separated from each other and not know each other. That just seems um, odd to me.
1: Well, I mean, so I, I take your point, BJ, but I think one of the things to kind of remember in terms of distances is that like a square mile is 640 acres,
2: yeah, okay.
1: So like you can you can farm a and, and I mean I don't a, a family or whatever cannot farm 640 acres, but just in terms of like distances and the amount of space that you would need to farm a um an amount of crops that would sustain at least who we get to know in this narrative. Um you don't actually need that much space.
2: Right, that I that's sorry, Sarah, I I'm on your side.
1: Okay. All right.
2: Like the, the amount of space that, that seems to be covered by the Czechy lion and they seem to be able to cover within presumably a very minor lord space that has, you know, maybe 50 families on it that somehow yeah. don't yeah, know yeah, yeah. each yeah. other and somehow aren't all like exactly related to each other because apparently people marry across the country or something.
1: <laughs> hmm. Yeah no okay so that makes sense and so the the sort of like distance that it would require for these number of people to not know each other on a day to day basis and be in like relatively small towns within the space um, that's a little unbelievable I would say is that what you're saying
2: Yeah that that's okay. that's why I'm kind of okay. confused So um, we're
1: probably in we're probably talking about a couple of square miles
2: Right probably that, That's sort of my guess and okay. and maybe they just are unneighborly um kinds of people so who knows anyway
0: <laughs> i mean historically there were a lot of laws about peasants not traveling between villages because the feudal lords didn't want them interacting with each other they wanted them in some ways to be separate not have been under, under any risk of uniting but i don't think we have any indication that those kind of laws are in place here at least they're not described yeah and
2: i mean the other way that uh they might have gotten men of fighting age which Venice uh, is so kind to remind us of, where uh, Sir Eustace would father a bunch of bastards, also apparently isn't the case. So um, they're very hard up
0: for uh, recruits. Well, Duncan and Egg ride right into one of the nearby villages where there's basically no one there because they're all out working in the fields. They hoist the banner of the Czechy lion, and they declare that there has been a peasant levy. Anybody of fighting age should go to stand fast at short notice. And this old lady is and just like,
2: is it war again? What's with the boy's head? Is he sick? And it's just the, like, <laughs> the funniest interaction of just like, is it war? But much more importantly, is that child
0: sick? It's shaved. Well, um, but like
1: objectively, wouldn't the question, wouldn't the most immediate question actually be like is there someone among us who can spread disease relatively fair, quickly fair, fair. Yeah. and
2: there was point. a disease that went through there recently so that right apparently... so that's like
1: in yeah that's in living memory it's like yeah. oh fuck if this kid's sick this is a much bigger deal than like is war coming
2: yeah and i guess a shaven head is like the weirdest thing ever, and and a mark of disease. So well, no, I
1: suggest that you're you're right that that is like marker of the disease. <laughs> but the idea of disease itself, um, yeah, you know that that is something that is very present and real to individuals for society.
2: Yeah, um, and so essentially we get no real interaction with the people, only uh, a further interaction with between Dunk and Egg where. Uh, dunk finds out from egg that sir bennis is a complete asshole as we essentially already knew and um has basically gone back to his um very weird interaction with young squires um i don't know it kind of reeks of like a like he pinches them like under their arms like a very sadistic but like creepy uncle touchy sadistic
0: (laughs) so let's 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 uh, sum up here we've described bennis now as a creepy uncle a new jersey mobster and a guy who leaves possum heads in people's beds we're not getting a good image of this guy as a character really honestly i
2: feel like we're giving him some slack given you <laughs>
0: know who he is and what he does well after the dunk and egg have now made this declaration to the peasants and are expecting the levy to show up in the morning dunk and egg returned back to stand fast and they have a pretty honest conversation about what egg is going to be expected to do to care for these peasants. And egg at first really is riled and unhappy with the idea that he's going to have to serve small folk. But they have a, a very, they have an, an extensive conversation on yes you will do it. Here's why. Here's what extra knowledge they have that you lack and how and the value and the pride in that. It seems really like the kind of conversation that when when Makar sent Egg out with Dunk, and when Dunk requested that Egg do this, this seems like the kind of conversation, the kind of perspective they were really hoping that Egg would get and develop. And it seems like Egg does take it to heart pretty quickly.
2: But I feel like they do have a very weird conversation about it, where Egg's like, okay, well, learn to plant barley, and then I can teach them about,
0: like, Lord's Banner.
1: Yeah, it's a weird it's exchange they, that he has decided that that is what is going to happen there.
0: They each have their knowledge, they each have their <laughs> skills, and they're going to share.
1: Yeah, and
2: Sarah, I feel like yeah. this is where your comment about, like, him being young and precocious comes, I think, comes in again, where it's just like, that sounds yeah. like something a six-year-old would say, maybe.
1: yeah. Yeah, and. that, that Red is very young to me, because, like, I don't know, you're supposed to have been to, like, Dorn at this point with mm-hmm. with Dunk, and, like, this is this is your read on... This is still your read on the world. Um, something about that reads a little off to me.
0: It, it definitely seems like that, regardless of what their prior adventures, this is really his first time hanging around small folk. I mean, I guess Dunk may have sheltered them from that when they were going through Dorn, and that just wasn't what they were doing, but as you're saying... At the very least, there's an innocence attached to it that's kind of surprising, given what he's already likely been through. But uh, next day, the peasant levy assembles, and uh, how would you guys describe the best crop of young warriors that assembles from Sir Eustace's villages?
2: Um,
1: Lackluster, at best.
2: Yeah, I would say, like, essentially the country bumpkin of country bumpkins that you wouldn't trust them to go noodling because they don't know, like, what to stick in the water. (laughs) (laughs)
0: that was <laughs> no, an interesting story there pj i
1: think that's i think that's fair so we have like what maybe like eight people who show up
0: yeah i think i think it's 12 that show up to start but they have to send several home because like a couple are sick a couple are really old one's a girl and they're left with like eight guys two of which vaguely have prior military experience but all of which are as green as grass and as you said very stereotypical series of country bumpkins that have wandered into their service.
1: And so there's this sort of, like, series of of scenes that are, are disappointment in these recruits and the kind of, like, rocky training, we're gonna run up the steps and that never really quite happens. <laughs> um, kind of, like, truncated training scenes um, and nothing ever nothing ever quite pans out with with these fighters, I would say.
2: Yeah, and I also think this is like a good contrast to other images of like levying the masses yeah, and maybe like a good contrast to what's happening in the current season and current episodes where they're just sort of like equipping everybody for war and that's kind of like a thing that's just happening whereas Mm -hmm. I think like what we're seeing is kind of like a more maybe realistic version of like, well, you know, we, we put some sticks together and that's a shield. Um, and you know, we had some big branches and we're going to use those as spears as opposed to sort of everybody gets their forged weapon that somehow,
0: you know, the castle forge is providing. Yeah. It's one of those things where if they had the equipment necessary to equip you like a knight, They'd probably just have a knight. They wouldn't necessarily have all that extra gear hanging around to give to you. Mm-hmm. Or wouldn't just have it hanging around for that purpose. Mm-hmm. But it, it, this, with this peasant levy, it seems like it, it's disappointing for all involved. That the peasants are showing up going, oh, do we get swords and shields? Are we going to get all this kind of, you know, loot when we go out to war together? No. And Sir Eustace is hoping for a relatively professional crop of soldiers to be pretty rapidly built out of these guys that ultimately are equipped with wicker shields, fire forged spears, and, as shown by the training that you described, Sarah, not much in the way of usefulness if it ever comes to a fighting.
1: Yeah. yeah with a with a little extra time, they could have been out chasing cats. But um...
0: <laughs> let's not assume too
2: much about their abilities there. As yeah, it is. Yeah, and, and I think the picture. Like really kind of sums it up and does a really good job of, it kind of looks like a, a community show puts on a Robin Hood mm-hmm. kind of
0: group. <laughs> These are the Merry Men.
2: Yeah. Um, and, you know, about what you'd get to a community theater. And, and so they're clearly a very sorry lot.
1: And so Dung kind of goes through, I guess, his best paces of trying to train them up. Although... The extent to which the extent to which Dunk is qualified to train a group of peasants to become fighters of any extent is a little bit questionable. Um, but he is nevertheless not given enough time, enough resources, um, enough like men of actual fighting age to do a whole bunch of good in any direction, really. But he he does his best. Um, yeah.
2: And essentially beats the crap out of them, tries to get them to take a charge to which they run from, which... Oh
1: yeah, no, the taking of the charge is not a thing that they are willing to do.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much you guys have been around large horses, but I I, I don't think anybody would convince me reasonably to be like, yep, you're going to stand in front of this thousand pounds of flesh hurtling at you.
1: Absolutely fucking not. Um... With, like, two interactions with horses, I will tell you I'm not going to do that. <laughs>
0: um, it, it is just so oddly ingrained. that When a horse is even charging vaguely at you, I just start, I feel a natural urge to jump and run out of the way. It, 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 it seems seemingly just imbued in humanity to be fearful of a large animal charging at you like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so
2: unsurprisingly, they... they break ranks what ranks they they might have had before this and sort of run away and then dunk sort of goes about trying to teach them a little bit about um sort of hand-to-hand well not hand-to-hand but sort of vaguely armed combat and through this is fairly dismayed and is like all right well
0: i need to tell sir eustace
2: that this isn't going to
0: happen well he has a conversation with egg that night of where egg really seemed to be coming terms with the fact that What is Sir Eustace really planning on doing this? Well, he's going to lead them to war. Then they're all going to die. Well, yeah, that's what war is. Well, that's dumb. Welcome to war, Egg. As you said, there's definitely still, in this book in particular, a lot of innocence associated with Egg about what the real world is like. And we're seeing it really laid out heavily in these pages.
1: Yeah, it's clear that Egg has gotten like really the kind of romanticized, mythicized view of what war is, what battle is um, without the sort of like messy, skidgy guts on the ground kind of version of what war is. Um, And so he's he's uncomfortable with this assessment of what is going to happen in the situation.
0: Mm hmm. Well, I think think where it goes from there is they just end training for the day, Dunk and Egg share that talk, Dunk gets his bath, and he beds down for the night, and he has his first of what are several dreams in this novel that really kind of show what conflicted state of mind he's in. Remember the first dream correctly? It's really death-focused. He's going through the death of Chestnut. He's going through everyone that seemingly died in his life where he's felt responsible for the deaths of. Very much taunting him about what the state of their deaths and how they how they've been let down by him. Um, do I have that right about that's His yeah, the first dream. That
2: it he was has? a very weird like. Uh, Arlen's like, why are you crying for Chestnut and you didn't cry for me? And it's just like, well, okay, this is this is awkward. <laughs> um, yeah, because Sir Arlen was like, prince- it's very skewed version of Sir Arlen, very clearly, and so I think it's you know the the deaths that that as you mentioned uh dunk has experienced
0: in his life weighing heavily on him right there's sir, there's Chestnut, there's sir arwen there's balor Breakspear, the great lord that died in the last book there's his son prince valar who apparently had died during the spring sickness too um and i think it even ends with essentially all of the peasants basically down in the same hole all expecting dunk to cover them with dirt and bury them in the ground um which sounds like a very unpleasant dream to have, but seems to be tying into a conversation with Egg about we're training these people to go die. This is just another responsibility on my conscience that I'm building towards, and it's clearly already affecting him, even if he's not decided to do anything about it yet.
2: Yep, and yeah, there's some interesting um, art that goes along yeah, that's, that's with kind this.
0: Of, that's a kind of horrifying image, really. There, those four those four things in the hole. Yeah. Um, so basically there's a bunch of skeletons
2: and a, well, a skeleton of a horse and a a handful of human skeletons that are depicted. So, yeah, I think nightmare visions are are, are pretty good there. Um, yeah, and so essentially there's more training,
0: um, and then after another bout of training, uh... Dunk finally just kind of opens up with Sir Eustace that these men are not going to be fit for war yeah. this is not something that they will be at all useful at. let's think of another way to do this uh, and so just kind of harkens back to the age of heroes apparently and goes oh we'll pay the blood price
2: well first, he man. first he's like well you know the people that fought during the blackfire rebellion you know weren't any better before they started training and dunks like okay Yeah, like, if you're going to sit and train them for a couple months, sure, but that's not what's happening. We got, like, a day. Yeah, and also, they
0: all died because you didn't train them well enough. (laughs) Um, It's noteworthy that only two of these peasants fought in the last war, despite apparently not being that long ago in the past. Really, pretty much just straight up, I think he even straight up admits at one point, that really, they're the only two that came back. Yeah. All the rest of them died, including all of his sons. Clearly, the war did not go well for Standfast.
1: Yep. But he does latch onto this, well, he, Sir Eustace mentions the idea of this blood price and um, Dunk really latches on to that as the kind of mm-hmm. like, maybe this is my way out, right? Maybe this is yeah. our way out, um, where we don't have to have this kind of ragtag group of people fight at least a number of trained warriors, fighters, knights, whoever they are, they are better than whoever is here right yeah. now, right? Um. So he, yeah, yeah he latches onto this thing and is like, "Well, let me go," or let he. I think he mentions, "Let us go meet the Red Widow," um, mm-hmm. and talk about this. And Sir Eustace is like, "Oh no, no, no! I'm not going on to this. Li- like, I will not cross."
0: He swore like a sacred oath yeah. that he would never cross it or something, which is really inconvenient for Dunk. It's like, okay, <laughs> I just showed up. Like a month ago, I got no stake in this, no knowledge, no prior experience, and you want me to handle the negotiation? My nickname is Dunk the Lunk, and I'm handling the complex negotiation between co- between rival communities now. Dunk. Okay, this is my face.
1: Dunk feels like some sort of intern in the office at this point. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah,
0: the intern that's now being asked to the client meeting. Yeah,
1: um, like, please, no. This is your role. Go take care of this for me. Um, yeah, but it, Sir Eustace is like in in on this whole thing, but w- is only kind of willing to go so far with Dunk.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, the- all right, we'll just take a handful of silver and see see if you can pay her off, which yeah. also feels like very little
0: money uh, to the peasant it would be a, a, a king's ransom probably the peasant would never price that much money in his freaking life really but, but how thought, much like, of
1: that really goes to the peasant
0: that's a question right there well the other the, well
2: it's one silver to the peasant
0: and three to the lady
2: but right. and spencer i feel like you had a long session about the um economics of uh westeros um mm-hmm. but i do believe that like ev- even in the last novella we were talking about like A silver like while being a reasonable amount of money is like maybe like a week or two
0: at an inn. well it's one of those things though that we see it's it really shows just how stark the divisions in this society are of where you like you talk about the topper lords they're dealing in hundreds of dragons for, for major events you're talking about hedge knights whatever else they're dealing in certain amounts of silver for their gear and whatever and whatever else they need to afford for their profession you're talking about a peasant they probably don't have money yeah. They probably don't ever have any form of money. The idea of actually getting silver extra that they just get have is probably something they may not get. I mean, they, they probably don't even pay their lord in taxes. They don't have the money to do so. Yeah, they the, just pay the taxes in are going to
2: be like, the, you know, some of their crops. In kind. But, but as, as I remember, like, an entire set of armor was like close to a thousand
0: silver or something along those lines. It was, well, but it just, again, it's something a peasant could never even aspire to. And I think right, that but that's... I guess the, the payment to the lady to, like, take down
2: oh, her no, dam it, for three silver? A pauper,
0: well, it's a blood price. They're paying, not paying her to take down the dam, they're paying her for the peasant. And even that, as you're pointing out, is a pauper's wage to her and her offended aunt. Right,
2: I guess that, that that's what I was trying to say, where it's just like, I, I don't know what's going on. Maybe Sir Eustace is like, well, I have, like, ten silver, and I basically subsist on, like, whatever uh people have from a but also seems to have and i guess this is where while the picture is great that we talked about where he has all this
1: stuff around him it looked like he had a crap ton mm-hmm. of
2: swords which <laughs> well and it was also
1: it- like mentioned in the descriptions that all of it was like relatively decrepit um yeah and so like maybe the metal itself the metal itself is potentially still good although albeit rusted um, but the kind of stuff around it that makes it, like, a thing in the world, like the, um, the leather and whatnot, right. that is all probably gone. But I would also point out that, like, the idea of pay- paying a blood price to the Red Widow has literally nothing to do with the peasant himself. Um, right. It True. has only to do with her honor. And so the, yeah. like, relative weight um, of what is paid... Has nothing to do with like what would be a fair price for the labor of this peasant, or what they mean to the society. Like it, it literally does <laughs> right. not matter. Um, yeah. It is this is not a replacement. What is, this is not yeah. a
0: replacement value kind of thing. Yeah, it is.
1: What is she willing to accept for this like besmirching of her honor for this person mm-hmm. she has never talked to before, um, never even known existed, um, mm-hmm. being disfigured and cut, which like. All right. Well, I guess a dragon or 3 is probably about the right price for that. Um, although she she will not accept so because like her honor is on the line, but it has nothing to do with the peasant himself.
0: Right. No, no. And and this is just this is just shows how foolish Sir Eustace is being about this. Cuz if he knows anything about Lady Webber and what she's trying to represent to the world, he would know that she literally can't accept this. But and that it would make mm-hmm. I was going to say and he knows her. He, he does, later he's find met out. her. <laughs>
2: Which, like, but, I don't know. Anyway.
0: Well, he sends Dunk on this mission the next day. And um, there's, like,
2: this whole, like, bathing ritual that he has with, with Egg. And they sort of talk about, like, what he's going to do. when Egg gives him, like, the six-year-old's version of how to talk to ladies. <laughs> um, yeah. It's the and... sort of, like,
1: American president, just compliment their shoes. And you're in. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the end of it. Um, which... Delightfully works in American president, so <laughs> I, think, I think
0: his end <laughs> advice: that everybody's got eyes, and she's probably wearing a dress. Focus there. Yeah, and yeah, it's kind of like a very
2: um, interesting interaction. And then, sort of on the way there, he's like, "All right, you know, I'm gonna wear my best tunic and stuff like that." And then he has this conversation with Egg that you know, Eustace was like, oh, you know, if I I had a, a daughter, like, I'd like you to marry her. And, and Egg's like, okay,
0: sure thing, dude. Um, I, I, I love Egg's mocking of that, of where, you know, Dunk's legitimately touched that Sir Eustace said this, that a, a noble knight from his perspective has said that, you know, if my daughter was alive, I, you'd really be the kind of guy I'd wanted to marry. And so Dunk's telling Egg this with no small amount of pride, and Egg's like, <laughs> yeah, she's dead.
2: Yeah. And also... Well, my only experience with women is my sister tried to feed me a love potion and that was... Um, and I, I don't like girls, so...
0: No. <laughs> them, Tar- them Targaryens is messed up. Um, <laughs> as they, you know, they continue to have this talk, he continues to get advice from Egg and they wake up in the morning and start to ride out. But Sir Eustace has essentially decided to ride with them. Of where he equips Egg with his uh, son's old clothes, so he's looking quite noble and quite proud of himself. And he gives uh, Dunk this just really elaborately embroidered, uh, kind of like, is it like a cloak yep. or a cape that yeah.
2: he puts on him? Yeah, a back? heavy
0: woolen cloak.
2: In the yeah. middle of
1: the drought <laughs> in summer. Thanks. Yeah, Cool. and it's yeah. like,
2: well, thank you. And Eustace and, and is like, well, if I had anything that fit you, I'd do more, but you're a giant.
0: Uh, this and is sure like Dunk's winter
1: thing... sweater weather, where like everything fits everybody. So, yeah. you know, yeah. wear your boyfriend's yeah, sweater, it- it's fine.
0: Yeah, but it's the, it's the grandparents' rule. He's given you the sweater. I don't care how scratchy it is. got to wear it while he's there. And so as Sir Eustace rides with them to the border, Egg's got to wear this just excessively heavy, sweltering, sweating-through-his-skin kind of cloak the entire route there. While Sir Eustace continues to entertain them with all the various stories about Wattswood and all the other between, all the history that's attached with it, while Dunk is thinking to himself the entire way, oh, God, shut up. It's damn hot.
2: Yep. And, I mean, I, I think the other funny part is, like, Dunk's worried about Egg being way too hot and getting, you know, boiled, a boiled egg, as he says. And it's like, well, doesn't he know by now, like, the the true-blood Targaryens don't seem to mind heat? Whatsoever. Um, so, I also found that kind of interesting. And then we get another picture of Egg, and um, what and he looks a lot more like a girl in this uh, picture, but sort of a,
0: a very poofy riding outfit with his big floppy hat to protect his head exactly well on their way we get more and more talk about the blackfire rebellion which as we're picking up as the story goes on seems to have been a really horrendously bloody civil war between two different factions of the targaryen family where the various targaryens you saw in the last book were the winners of it but it was a war that a lot of people in this story fought in and a lot more died in including the bulk of sir eustace's family
2: and I think that uh, okay. you're bringing up, like, it was a civil war. It really seemed to ac- encompass
0: much of the Seven Kingdom. Yeah, with various houses fighting on each side, and them even talking about, well, were they on the reds or the black side, as they're discussing various other lords and, uh, as they go on. Uh, notably, Sir Eustace never exactly reveals what side he was on as a plot point that'll come up later. Which is interesting um, that
2: he does bring up the lord that he fought for, and that Egg doesn't mm. know that. Though I wonder if it just sort of wasn't important for Egg to learn those banners, but that's sort of
0: like the one thing that he's super useful for in the previous story. One of the things that may help there in terms of Egg not knowing about it is it seems like a lot of these houses that fought on the losing side don't exist anymore and may not have existed at the time Egg was born. So it may just not have been a house that he would even learn about because it just doesn't remain to be something to learn about. That makes sense. Um... But we get all this talk about the uh, Battle of the Red Grass Field, about the various warriors that fought on each side, about Damon, the leader of the quote unquote rebel forces, and his death in the battle by Blood Raven's shenanigans. Um, so it's a lot of description of history that, again, Dunk really does not care about in this given moment because he's just so damn hot and wants to make it to this damn castle so that he can make a fool of himself, as he assumes he's going to. Eventually, um, Sir Eustace leaves them. I think when they reach the stream, which I think is like the boundary of his oath that he's not going to walk on cold, not walk on Weber land until cold until is his again, because um, apparently it was used to be the seat of the Oscars in the distant past. We don't know how distant, but presumably a long time a long time ago.
2: Yeah, and uh, so they get he gets a little bit more of the battle here, and it's kind of like all right, well, I'm not going to quite ask him straight out. Did he fight for? pretender Mm -hmm. um and yeah and then essentially uh as far as i can tell sir eustace sort of sends him off and then he has the uh trials and tribulations of
0: uh the lady spider's house (laughs) which no aspect of that goes according to plan or at all well for him i would say yeah well yes and no Yes and no. Yes and no. There isn't. It, it doesn't go according to plan, but it goes well in ways he doesn't expect. It. Yes. Um, anyway, so essentially uh, he
2: sort of announces himself at the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, let's see, basically the, I don't know, head of the castle or, or the administrator sort of is like, all right, well, I guess I'll take you in. Uh, maybe, I'm not sure. And then an old farting meister is like, hey, take him in, like, let him say his piece. And then farts a couple more times because that's
0: super important to the story. Again, this is getting straight Shakespearean that we've got a farting meister in the story. Uh, I think his name is Sefton Se- Septon, Sefton, is that right?
1: Which is, you know, really helped by the fact that he is not only a, a farting meister, but also a sort of drunk fighting, uh, drunk farting meister Um, which does not help with his name at any point either.
2: Yeah, and he sort of passes by a bunch of people practicing archery and catches the eye of a young girl and then sort of wanders in and talks with a lady in a dress for a little while who seems um, like she's a few kingdoms short of seven.
0: (laughs) It's apparent as he's walking through this yard, too, that Okay, there's a lot more wealth at play in cold mode. For one, it's a larger castle. and For two, there are knights here. There are people equipping and arming for war here. Uh, it's very apparent that the, lev- the relative levels of prosperity and of military strength between Standfast and cold mode are night and friggin' day. Um, putting probably no small amount of pressure on as he's walking this, that if I don't reach a treaty right now, we're all going to die.
2: Yep. And so he essentially just starts talking to this lady and tries to get anywhere. And um, in walks le- uh, the lady herself, who was the young girl that he saw, or the, what he thought was, or who he thought was young girls shooting uh, arrows in the courtyard. That is just like, all right, what are you guys doing? What's going on? Okay. Uh, yeah, my steward was playing a joke on you. Sorry about that. All right, what are you doing?
0: And yeah, it's pretty apparent that he misjudged her from the start. She's, while short and slight in all ways, um, she is very much in command of her situation. She's about in her mid-twenties. She speaks with a voice of authority that he doesn't really expect and pretty quickly puts him off his game. He returns to the lessons that Egg taught him to try to reestablish himself in the situation. And, uh, yeah, that um, uh, square peg and round hole does not go <laughs> over too well for him.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, he essentially tries to compliment things that aren't there, and tumbles all over himself, and then it gets awkward, and basically is like, "All right, well, so this is the situation. Uh, what can we do about it?"
0: Um, right now in the books.
2: Yeah, it, like they they sort of go back and forth, and it's just like, "All right, well, you know, you're taking our our water." And she's like, well, you know, we need
0: that water. and. Well, one thing I think it's apparent as they're having this conversation, you eventually encourage them to go off and have a private version of the conversation rather than do it in public, is that as much as he's being very much awkward, at least at first she seems more than somewhat humored by this particular tall, strange, awkward night that's before her. She, some, some of her dialogue is... Downright mischievous. There's a certain amount of playful flirting that seems to be attached with this that Dunk does not pick up on at all because he's utterly intimidated by her. Um, but he seems to be doing better than he thinks he is up until certain moments of this private conversation, of where they have what appears to be a very honest talk about the circumstances, about what's going on, um, and she seems receptive to at least have the discussion and hammer out what's and hammer out her own perspective on it. But it pretty quickly becomes apparent that Dunk has been deprived key bits of information that might have assisted him in these talks about what Sir Eustace's actual position in Westeros is right now. Yeah, one one of which being he does not own this stream anymore. Uh, a more than minor detail he could have pointed out. And oh yeah, he actually fought on the side of the of the rebels, and as a result of that, is lucky he even kept his head, much less any any degree of power and authority in the surrounding community. Yeah, and
2: also. I mean, given the whole story, uh, sort of unsurprisingly, I, I think that there might have been some run-ins with Bennis before, and so maybe now everybody or, and, and the, you know, the Lady Spider now has cause to say, all right, Bennis is an asshole, he's been an asshole for a really long time, and he's done something that I can finally call him out for, so, you know, give him to me, and we'll kind of call it even.
0: Uh, so. Which is not a term that Dunk's really willing to negotiate on. He's come here with a specific purpose to pay a blood price, which she just utterly laughs at as almost insulting, um, and is not willing to give over anybody's life or even yield terms because he hasn't been given any authority to do that. Yep. One thing, one thing he finds out, though, that's interesting from Septon Sefton, who is either drunk and just speaking about all kinds of things or is actually trying to tilt this conversation in a way that maybe he believes it could actually result in a positive outcome is that uh, the lady Rohan uh, Rohan Rohan how do we how do we want to pronounce her name Lady Webber um, has a certain thing hanging over her head that she's having to deal with one she is uh, a young woman who's having to rule a nob- a noble region while surrounded by men that would want to usurp and find any weakness in her authority to usurp her power and she's bound by a particular will uh, estate uh instruction from her father upon his deathbed that essentially she has to get married within a set period of time or all of her lands default out of her authority which has led no small amount of local lords and other people including her own steward the long inch to try to win her hand she seems to be rather annoyed at a certain point
2: yeah and i mean i think she does at least give some sort of reasoning which is just like i mean they are bachelors and while they are technically eligible,
0: eh, it's more like Big Brother than The Bachelor. <laughs> they don't exactly measure up to what she's actually looking for. Apparently one lord does, a Gerard Lannister, but uh, she's not under much hopes that he has any intention to coming to try to earn her hand. Yeah, um, he seems to be
2: a little bit more of a fop than the uh, Lannisters that we've come to know a
0: little bit better. Hmm. Well, how does this conversation play out and where does it end up? It seems like a memory serves Dunk makes more than one small mistake here in the end of it. Having learned through egg reading to him that Sir Eustace has lost essentially his lands and his river, having learned that Sir Eustace fought on the wrong side and has been hiding that from him and feeling no small amount of betrayal on this, he tries to salvage the situation with one of the few things he does know, that Lady Webber apparently shared a close friendship or even something more with Sir Eustace's son, Adam. And so, Dunk tries to hearken to this. He tries to remind her of the love that she shared for him as a way of trying to bring the negotiations back to a positive point. This proves to be a mistake. Because again, Dunk was provided essentially no information before he went on this client meeting and is just ad-libbing it as he goes. Yep. And he walked into one hell of a trap with that one.
2: Yeah, yeah. anyway, so Spencer, as you were saying, like he gets slapped and, and makes a poor decision there. Um, and then is essentially escorted off her
0: lands and sent on his way. Um, Could could Sir Eustace have more set him up for failure with this? There's a lot of information he could have provided to assist him with this conversation and know what landmines to avoid, what positions of weakness he was coming from. There's a lot he could have helped, but I guess that Sir Eustace's pride was of too great a degree to admit this kind of, you know weakness or deficit in his legacy that he's having to deal with, at least not to a, even one of his own sworn swords. Yeah, yeah, I mean,
1: I think we get a lot of uh, a lot of evidence that um, Dunk could have screwed this up all on his own, um, but mm-hmm. not having the requisite amount of information that would have been available to him is certainly not doing him any favors, but he could have ended up in the situation where he is sort of being slapped by the lady of the neighboring d- town, community, whatever, um, while still having enough information to kind of salvage the situation in some way.
0: Right. Yeah. And I, think, I think it's apparent that if Dunk hadn't been tied to Sir Eustace here, he was actually doing rather well for himself just as Dunk. She clearly liked him, or was at least very curious about him. She's asking him about Sir Arwen of Penitry. She's asking him about his past, which he's a little more than a little bit embarrassed about. And all, uh, early Dunk... on, even offered him, you know,
2: it was like, well, you know, why don't you swear your sword with me? um Mm -hmm. and she might have had some ulterior motives there but like reasonably you know if he was not and we again don't know how he ended up in the service of services could have you know at least worked his way up in the world and she offers like hey you know we have people here that can train your squire and and help out with like the help that you kind of seem to need Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it's interesting not only how he got kind of hooked up with Sir Eustace, but, like, his personality trait and staying so intrinsically connected to Sir Eustace. Um, and, you know, I think we'll, we'll get a little bit later in the story to a break, but, like, he hangs on to this whole thing for, like, far longer than is reasonable when you start meeting Sir Eustace and kind of figuring out what is actually going on in the nation.
0: I think this is one of the problems of Sir Arlen dying before Dunk's training, or at least perspective on the world, was in any way complete. Because he still has this very romantic view of what knightly vows mean, about how if he swears his sword to someone, he is bound to that person, regardless of how suicidally defenseless that person's position is.
2: Which is also kind of weird, because presumably Arlen... Pennytree has sworn his sword in quite a number of places and quite a number of times and then mm-hmm. left that lord's
0: surface probably not maybe perhaps not before the job was done maybe right or at least not in a way that he told dunk about when they for the reason why they were leaving yeah and i guess maybe
2: you know dunk would have been leaving once he discharged his winely duties but <laughs> you know
1: <laughs> yeah, we don't know how long this whole thing was meant to go on. But it is interesting. We kind of started this conversation with a little bit of, you know, how how much do we think Egg has grown or aged or matured in the process? And the, the answer is really not much from where we met him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, apart from the fact that, like, Dunk has taken on this sort of knightly um, persona to him... I think the same question can still be asked of Dunk in these moments, too. Like, to what extent Mm -hmm. is he doing anything different than he would have? Maybe not exactly at the beginning of the first novella, but in the middle. Would it have been that different?
2: I I, I agree with you. And and I think that might be the trouble of end time past and Mm -hmm. not having like a clear idea of what that would mean
0: for the characters involved. Yeah. It's one, it seems like it's one of the traps of episodic storytelling of where the only apparently major movements in a person's life happen when the camera is on. Mm-hmm. And seemingly the years in between, nothing of importance happens. We're focusing in on the relevant moments, but it leaves them in a certain static state between episodes that don't always make a perfect degree of sense. I mean, I like Dunk's character growth in this novel. He seems to really... Improve as a person and improve his his perspective. Get a better idea of what it would potentially mean to be a knight of the Seven Kingdoms. But I guess that means that the year and a half previously, he just kind of carried on, carrying on. Yeah. So, and the adults in his life haven't seemed to do
2: anything to help that along.
1: Yeah. So speaking of a static state between episodes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well done. Go on. <laughs> Um, I think we've reached a good stopping point for this one. On. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So essentially, Dunk and Egg get sort of kicked out of um, of the the Red Widows' um, castle and are on their way back to Coldmoat. Is that right? Uh,
0: they're leaving. Cold they're Moat leaving Coldmoat.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, so they are on their way in transit again. And so perhaps, as you mentioned, this would be a good time to kind of pause on our end um, and yep. pick pick the journey back up again with them.
0: We'll return with our next episode with the exciting conclusion, of the second novel of The Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, The Sworn Sword. Until then, BJ, as always, where can people <laughs> listen to my material if they're curious to find out more of our various uh, uh, discussions? Yeah, so um,
2: as mentioned before, you can find uh, the... Uh, titular podcasts as it were that we're also paying homage to with uh, Mangum Reads, the GOT got questioned um, and supposedly Mangum Hoops where uh, <laughs> Lee and Levi talk about basketball um, and then Whiskey on the Weekend which uh, we're going to revisit in about a week and a half and Spencer is going to um, glory in the uh, trials and tribulations that I've set up for him um, and you can find all of that and Always happy to help. Um, Find that content on MangumTalks.com, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Podcast Addict, essentially wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, yeah, um, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or anything like that, uh, please feel free to uh, get in touch with us. There's a button on the top right of MangumTalks.com that says Contact Us, and we read and and enjoy all of the uh, comments and suggestions that you had for us. but um, as my compatriots have mentioned, it's getting a little late. And so I think we're going to wrap it up. All right.
0: Well, until next episode, everybody, we will then finish off Duncan Egg and afterwards move on to the fifth season. But we hope you all are reading with us and excited to find out how we will finish the story up. Uh, good night, guys.
2: All right. Sounds good. Bye, y'all.